Great job, uh, guys. Uh, I'm trying to figure out now why I'm up here. <laughs> um, maybe I'm just, uh, I'm thinking of all these dad jokes that would just not, not work because of the age difference between you guys and me and why am I speaking on you Sunday. But uh, that's okay. So you guys did a great job. Uh, big thanks to Lee and Mary, wherever you guys are at, and uh, all the children's workers. Uh, great job. We can give them a hand. <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm Greg. I'm, I'm uh, actually one of our family is one of the uh, missions that Partnership supports, and we, uh, we appreciate, and we go here, we, we attend here, and so we appreciate your all support uh, of our ministry. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm sitting over there, you know, I'm getting ready to, to talk, and I look around, I'm like, boy, there's a lot of kids in here. And I'm thinking, man, what I have prepared, and what, ooh, this is going to be rough. This could get a little rough, okay? This could get a little rough this morning, but that's okay. Uh, April has, uh, me and my uh, daughter May taught four and five-year-olds a few weeks ago, and uh, it didn't break out into full-on WWE, so we, we survived. So here's the deal. If during what I'm talking about this morning, your kid beside you, or kids, plural, gets a little anxious and a little, that's okay. That, that's fine. That's so fine. Uh, here's what works. A, 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 a good pinch... Right, right there on the... No, I'm kidding. Uh, so we're going to walk through some stuff uh, because we've been in a series in the big room uh, called A Hill to Die On. And this series we've been talking about in here is the foundations of what Partnership Christian Church believes about some really important stuff. Jeff has already talked about God, about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And this morning, I'm going to be talking about the Bible. And we're going to begin with Partnership's belief statement about the Bible that you find on the website. And here's what it says. The Bible is the inspired Word of God and our guide for life. We accept the Bible as the final authority in matters of faith and life. True story. My friend's daughter was taking an ancient literature class in college. The first day of class, the professor walks into the classroom holding up a Bible, and he said, for some of you guys in here, you have grown up thinking that this book is trustworthy, so trustworthy that you have decided to build your life on its teachings. And that professor took that Bible and threw it out the open window. Now, whatever you think about the Bible, whatever you think about it, it's unlike any other book, right? I mean, it's not just one book. It's, it's a collection of 66 books. And year after year, this book is the most popular book in the world. It's so often the best-selling book that, they, that they've quit putting it on the best-selling list because it would win week after week after week. They just don't do that anymore. So we got 66 books, 39 of them are before the life of Jesus, and that's called the Old Testament. 27 of them are after the life of Jesus, and we call that the New Testament. 
And these books were written by some 40 different authors. All right? And some of these authors, some of them were fishermen. Some of them were kings. Some of them were shepherds. Some of them were farmers. One of them was a physician. So they're from all different types of backgrounds, these 40 different authors. And they wrote these books while on three different continents over a 1,500-year period. But here's the thing about this book. It has one message. And that message rings clear throughout 40 different authors over three different continents over a 1,500-year period. It's consistency is supernatural. The main message is Jesus. This book, Makeup and Consistency, is incredible. But it's also one of the most hated and most controversial books of all time. You know, there are countries today that if you tried to tell somebody about the stories in this book, or if you tried to give this book to somebody, there are countries today where you could be in prison for that, or even worse. But yet at the same time, there are millions of people throughout the world who would say this book is loved, and it's the most powerful book in human history. I want to share a little bit this morning about my journey with this book. And the book we're talking about, remember, is what? The Bible. The B-I-B-L-E. And a dad joke says, and that's the book for me, all right? I became a Christian when I was 20, just about five years ago. <laughs> that's not funny. I'm lying. <laughs> I became a Christian when I was 20, and right after that, I began reading this book. By faith, I was reading this book. And every once in a while, I would think, is this book true? Are all the things I'm reading in here trustworthy? But by faith, despite those legitimate questions, I kept on reading and believing. You see, faith is the starting place with this book. It's the starting place. It, if you try to read the Bible without faith, it's like reading a textbook for school. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. So as a new Christian, I read by faith. Trusting the Bible as God's Word. But as time moved on, I began asking questions. How do I know I can trust the Bible? How do I know that these things I read about Jesus and the things that He did and said, how do I know that that's actually what He did and said? I began to question and I began to wonder. But as the years went on, I, my faith in the Bible was strengthened. And my reliability of Scripture grew. And I had several people help me with that throughout the years. My father-in-law. I had a guy in my undergraduate Greek class. I'm not a linguistic guy. But man, this guy, Jonathan Wolfgang, he understood it and he knew it. So I stuck close beside him in Greek. And I still follow his teaching and preaching ministry to this day. I have uh, people like Lee Strobel. We're going to talk about some of his stuff a little bit later. Uh, I've had people like uh, Frank Turek. He's a guy who wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. People like J. Warner Wallace and Daniel Wallace. They're not related, I don't think, but Daniel Wallace is the supreme guy when it comes to textual critic stuff about the Bible. I had all kinds of people that I read and studied that grew my faith that I stand before you today and I say 100% certainty. This Bible is true and it's trustworthy. 
But you know what? There's some people who's not always thought things like that about the Bible. Because there's some crazy stuff in the Bible. I mean, there's some crazy and implausible things in there. You got the whole world being flooded. You got seas being parted. You got axe heads floating. That's in there. You got donkeys talking. <laughs> That's in there too. In Numbers chapter 22, by the way, if you want to have a family fun teen night at your house, read Numbers 22 in the King James Version. Because King Jimmy doesn't, doesn't call a donkey a donkey. That's some fun reading. And you got blind people seeing. You got crippled people picking up their mats and walking. You, you, you've got people walking on water. Well, Jesus did. And, and you've got all these crazy things. You've got dead people coming back to life. You've got some far out stuff, stuff in here. How can I trust a book with contents like that? And so some people say, oh, it's just a book full of legends and myths and fairy tales, right? If you've ever had doubts about the Bible like that, if you have doubts about the Bible right now about that, I'm glad you're here this morning. And we do have our own questions. Skeptics have had their own questions. There's skeptical Bible uh, college professors that, that are skeptical about it. Uh, in the 90s, we had the Jesus Seminar come out. In the 2006, we had the book and the movie, Da Vinci Code, come out. All those guys have been dismissed now by Christian and non-Christian scholars. GQ Magazine even jumped in the fray and said, I'm going to throw some dirt at the Bible. And here's what GQ Magazine, Fashion Magazine, in 2018 says about the Bible. The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. Nah, that's sort of undoubting. Those who have read it know that there are certain good parts, some good parts, but overall it's certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious. I had to look that word up, by the way. Sententious means that you're proud of your morals. You're, you, know, you think you're good and you know it. And it's foolish and even at times ill-intentioned. So all kinds of people throughout the years have had attempts to burn and to beat down and banish the Bible. But throughout the, throughout the years... The Bible has stood. Look what it says about itself. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the Bible says that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And then Jesus has this to say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Throughout the centuries, the Bible survives. Supernaturally, it survives. Now, it's okay to have doubts and questions about Scripture. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with asking sincere questions of faith. Nothing wrong with that at all. You see, faith is too big of a thing to, to just sort of settle for shallow answers and to sort of check your brain at the door and not think. It's too big of a thing. But it's also too big of a thing to just doubt and not seek, seek answers. And it's also too big of a thing to just sort of rely on other people and not seek your own answers. So I want to share a few things that I can stand before you tonight, today and say, I trust the Bible. It is God's Word. I've already shared one with you. Its consistency is supernatural. 
40 authors, three different continents, 1,500 years, one message? How many families in here will say, hey, let's go get something to eat? And nobody can agree on where to go get something to eat, right? You're messed up. Your messaging's all up. Not so with Scripture. First thing I want to look at and share a little bit about is what the Bible says about itself. And everybody says, well, that's just circular logic. You know, if, if I'm wanting to know if uh, somebody's telling the truth or not, and I go up to them and say, hey, man, are you telling the truth? And they say, yeah, I'm telling the truth. And I say, okay. That's circular logic, right? But we have to start there. We have to know what the Bible says about itself. Two places you can go. Best two places I think you can go. What the Bible says about itself. Second uh, Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. Some of your translations say breathe out by God. You imagine God breathing stuff out. Breathe by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. And then Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sounds like a surgical room at a hospital, right? All the stuff going on there. You see, but what's happened in my life, time and time again, I've seen these verses work backwards, all right? I've seen them work backwards, from back to front. I've, I've, I've experienced the Word of God correcting and piercing and discerning my intentions of my heart. I, it's spoken to me about the need to forgive others, to kill sin in my life. It's spoken to me and said, hey, your patience is broken, Right? And it's reminded me of the presence and the grace and the mercy of God. And it's encouraged me to pick myself back up and get back to the throne of grace where I find healing and help. And after the Bible has performed surgery on us like that, we have what we call a working apologetic. It means that you actually believe it because it's worked on you. And when something is worked... You have trust in it. One of the best cars I ever owned was a 1987 Ford Ranger. Some of you in here probably thought I was going to say a 1999 CRV. Well, that's a good one too. But this 87 Ford Ranger was one of the first cars I ever had, and I had it for almost eight years. And that thing was so reliable, so trusted. It, for eight years, it only broke down on me twice. And those were the two times I ran it out of gas. But I trusted that thing. Every time I got in it, it worked. And Scripture does that. You see, if we try to go to the, the Bible and say, and we start at the beginning and say, all Scriptures breathed out by God, and we're like, huh? How does that work? But when it's worked on us, and when it's pierced us, and we've engaged personally with it, and we have experience that it has power like no other book, then we can say, oh yeah, it works. Nothing works on me like that, so it's got to be from God. And when we have that conviction about it, we're going to be less likely to believe that skeptical college professor when he walks in the room and throws it out the window. Oh, it's never worked on his life, but it has on mine. 
But you know what? To grow that conviction and that belief, you have to have personal engagement with it. You can't just take what somebody else says about it. Now, parents teaching and leading, that's great. Youth pastors teaching and leading. Pastors teaching and leading. But we have to have personal engagement. Convictions are never borrowed. Convictions are never inherited. They come through intimate connection. So two questions I think we can leave this one with. Is the, God, the Bible working in our lives? Are we engaging personally with it? And when we do, conviction of it will grow. The next one that's bolstered my faith is Jesus. Okay, you're like, there you go, going with that circular logic thing again. Well, you got to know what Jesus says about the book. And to be clear, we don't worship a book, right? We worship the one who the book is about. You could wipe the planet of every Bible, of every translation, of every manuscript, of every copy. You could wipe the, Bible, the, the world clear of all that stuff and you would still have Jesus. Because Jesus is what Christianity is built on. And what he did is what Christianity is about. The book didn't live a sinless life. The book didn't die a substitutionary death. And the book is definitely not coming back from the dead. Jesus is superior. He's ultimate. And so what's he say about the Bible? Well, he considered the Old Testament, Old Testament to be historical fact. If you read through the Old Testament, it might take you a few days. But we see that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the first four books of the New Testament, we see in there Jesus refers to a bunch of people and places from the Old Testament, authenticating them. He refers to Abel and Moses and Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and Isaac and Jacob and the manna they ate in the wilderness and the snake in the desert and David and Solomon and Elijah and Elisha and Jonah and Zechariah and probably a few I missed, right? And then he says this about in Luke 24, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And there, in those three categories, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, Jesus basically says, covers all the Old Testament. Authenticates. And personally, right? Personally. When it comes down to choosing between, am I going to believe what the History Channel producer thinks or a social media influencer or a podcaster... I'm going to go with Jesus every time. What he thinks. Take a deep breath. I'm going to take a deep breath. I don't even know what time it is, but we're going to... This one I've debated to whether to even talk about. And then when I saw all the kids in here, I'm like, oh... But here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive shallow, and we're going to swim short and textual. Okay? Here we go. Textual. BiblicalTraining.org, if you want to know more about this stuff. Dr. Daniel Wallace, he, you can actually take free classes from one of the best ancient textual guys in the world. BiblicalTraining.org. I've taken his classes on there. I actually reviewed some of his stuff for this, for this thing this morning. 2 Peter 1. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else's own interpretation... 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here we go. So you got the writers of the Bible, okay? They were inspired by God. And they wrote. And there is a lot of mystery involved in how that happened. We don't know exactly what it means to be carried along by the Holy Spirit. Got an idea, but don't really understand it completely. Mystery. Everybody okay with mystery in your life? If you, if, if you believe in Jesus and the cross, you've got a lot of mystery in your life, and it's okay. All right? But here's what we do know. This inspiration was not mechanical. These guys were not robots. They were using their own personalities, their own interests, their own writing styles as a part of the inspiration process. And so they wrote, and then after years, after writing, people started looking around and said, we thought Jesus was coming back. Where's Jesus? And one guy, I guess some, somebody had the idea, said, we better start making copies of what this sacred text was written down, or we're not going to have these sacred texts for the years and years and years after. And so scribes started copying what was originally written. All right? Are we good? Now we get into how do we know for sure what we have today is what was written back then. All right? It's called textual criticism. Now, I know if you're wanting to get a fork out of your purse and jab your eyeball right now, let's, let's not do that yet. Because that's a temptation, I know. So, how do we know for sure? Anybody ever played the telephone game? The telephone game, right? You have, a, you have some guy up here, and he starts a message, and it goes doom, 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 doom. And then you get to the end, and then you ask the guy at the end, hey, what did you have? What's the message? And then you compare what the message ended up, what it was at the beginning, and you laugh because it was sort of nowhere close maybe or whatever. That's what textual critics do for a living. Okay? They want to know what was started way back when is actually what we have today. That's my version of how you explain that. Okay. But they do that and they look at three things. The number of manuscript copies. They look at the time gap between the first one that was written and the, the first copy that was made, and you want that time gap to be small. A hundred years is a lot better than 900 years. Not to say that if it's 900 years, it's not legit. And then you want differences or variants. You don't want many of those, but you're going to have some because guess what? Way back, way back then, they didn't have spell check. So you're going to have differences in the, in the copies. Actually, the name John in the Bible that we read you could spell that with one new at the end, that's the letter N, or you could spell it with two, right? So a lot of people spell it with one, and if it was different than the other copy of a manuscript, oh, that's a difference. And the New Testament has 24,000 copies. So every time, that's a different spelling. But the main thing in difference is you don't want the main message to be changed. That's the main thing with textual criticism. So there's the three... Three deals. This, this slide's scary. scares me to death. That's okay. We're not going to beat you up with this slide. We're just going to get to the bottom line. When you look at the number of copies versus ancient other historical books outside the Bible, and you compare it with the number of copies we have of the New Testament, the New Testament blows that test out of the water. Okay? That white box is some of the ancient manuscript 
that we have, Pliny, Plato, all those guys, those are legitimate resources outside the, outside the Bible. We have a little over 1,000 of those copies. New Testament, we have over 24,000 copies. It's like this. You go to that back parking lot right here, okay? You look to the south and the east and you see Mount Lacan, okay? If I, if I stacked all the copies of the legitimate historical ancient texts outside Scripture, if I stacked them all, it would be about four feet tall, okay? The Bible, I would have to go get Mount Lacan, take about 600 feet off Mount Lacan, and boom, put it right here. That's the differences. That's how many copies of the manuscripts we have of the New Testament. They're over a mile high if they were stacked up because the over 24,000, they average about 450 pages apiece. And then when it comes to time gap, Bible wins hand down. Uh, 900 years for the non-biblical text average, Bible is less than 100. And then when it comes to variances or differences, you're going to have those. But here's what Norman Geisler, he's a textual critic guy, here's what he says. Not only are there more in earlier New Testament manuscripts, but also they were more accurately copied than other ancient texts. The Greek scholar A.T. Robertson estimated that New Testament textual concerns places accuracy of the New Testament text at better than 99%, the best known for any book from the ancient world. All right, you can open your eyes back up, because here's the bottom line, the big green words. Christian and non-Christian textual scholars all agree the Bible is the most accurate and trusted of all ancient documents. Textually, the Bible can be trusted. Congratulations, we survived. You, you kids are amazing. You're better than the adults. So the next time somebody says, how do you know the Bible's true? You say, it's true. Boom. That's all you say. Just walk off. Then you can tell them later. Fulfilled prophecy. We're, we're, we're over halfway done. We, we're, we're getting there. Jeff's like, halfway? What are you talking about? <laughs> fulfilled prophecy. Now, here's what fulfilled prophecy means. It means that the Bible said something was going to happen, and years later it actually happened. It was fulfilled. There's all kinds of examples of this in the Bible. Isaiah 44 is a good one. In Isaiah 44, Isaiah says, Oh, uh, Jerusalem, there's going to be a guy by the name of Cyrus, and he's going to lead you guys, you Jews, out of captivity and back into Jerusalem. That's in Isaiah 44. The problem was Cyrus wasn't even born yet. And Isaiah is saying, a guy by the name of Cyrus... Well, a hundred years later, guess what happened? King Cyrus out of Persia led the Jews out of captivity and back into Jerusalem. There's many prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. The Old Testament would say a lot of things about Jesus, and then years later, boom, it happened. One of those is Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says that about seven or 800 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was going to come from the family line and tribe of Judah. He came from the family line and tribe of Judah. Isaiah 53, 750 years before Jesus walked the earth, he said he was going to be bruised and he was going to be beaten. 
And he was going to be despised and rejected on our behalf. All types. Actually, there's over 200 fulfilled predictions about Jesus in the Old Testament that came true in his life. Over 200 phenomenal reliability between the Old Testament and New Testament. A guy by the name of Lee Strobel, he was a former atheist, a law degree from Yale. He was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He's written now several books of faith, Case for Faith, Case for Christ. He, he, he set out years ago to disprove Christianity. He said, I'm going to prove the falsehood of Christianity. And here's why he did that. His wife had become a Christian. And she was trying to get him to go to church with her. Lee didn't want to go to church. And so he said, I'm just going to dis disprove Christianity. I'm going to prove to you that Christianity is false. And therefore, I'll have my Sunday morning free. Okay. So he set out on this investigative reporting because that's what he did for a living. But something else happened. His disproof, un, or his attempt to disprove, uncovered evidence that he couldn't ignore. He found that the odds of any human being throughout history fulfilling just eight of the over 200 predictions of Jesus' life in the Old Testament, the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of those were substantial odds. Not one in a million. Not one in a billion. Not even one in a trillion. But the odds of just one person fulfilling just eight of those, one in 100 million billion. That's a number with a one and like 17 zeros behind it. That's a big number. Well, that doesn't make much sense to me, right? What's that mean? Lee said, here's what that means. He, he says, that means that if I had a one inch and a half inch, one and a half inch towel, and one and a half inch towel, a towel about that big, you know, that you tile your bathroom door or something or wall with. He said, if I had those tiles and I tiled the whole dry planet Earth with those tiles, okay? If you can imagine the whole planet dry Earth being tiled with those tiles, but on one of those tiles, I took a gold star and put it on the back of it and laid it somewhere. And then I came to you and said, I want you to go find that gold star. You can go to Tokyo. You can go to Rio. You can go to Timbuktu. That's actual place, by the way, Timbuktu. It's in West Africa. Or you can stay right here in Blount County. But you can go and pick one tile, bend down and pick it up. If your tile has that gold star, that's the odds of one person in history fulfilling just eight of the over 200 predictions of Jesus in the New Testament. And Jesus didn't just fulfill eight. He fulfilled over 200 predictions about himself. And there's one prediction that is yet to be fulfilled. He's coming back. And you can guarantee he's going to come back. But sometimes Christians, we get all puffed up when we say, oh, he's going to come back. That's hope, friends. Because all this crap... Did I just say that? I'm sorry. All this stuff we see going on in the world, it's going to be made right one day. True justice is coming. And it's Jesus.
but he's also coming to collect his people. The Old Testament and those fulfilled prophecies, it's reliable. History and archaeology, the Bible's full of details. Many places, I mean, I read through the Bible, I, I can't pronounce half of the places, right? Those names, Hittites, Jebusites, all those other sites and ites. And, but the Bible talks about a lot of people and places. But, and you know how to know if a, if a book is reliable? When it talks about a people and a place, you'll eventually find out about that people and place. And if that people and place didn't exist, you're going to be like, that book's, that book's not credible. And there's a bunch of religious books that have a lot of talk about people and places, but we've yet to find any of them. But how, how reliable is the Bible when it comes to that stuff? I mean, the Bible has been scrutinized for years when it comes to history and all that. And when we check it out, when we actually find archaeology discovery, it always proves the credibility of Scripture, and it checks out. I mean, if, if we didn't even have a Bible through other historical sources outside the Bible that are credible, we would know that Jesus was a real person, that he had followers that believed that he was the Messiah, Son of God, that those followers believed that he'd come back from the dead, that those followers went throughout the world and spread his name, his, about his life and his death and his resurrection. We could know all of that stuff about Jesus even without the Bible through other outside historical evidences. The Bible's history is legitimate. It's incredible. Archaeology, it confirms more and more that the Bible can be trusted. You know what people do? We buy stuff, right? We collect stuff. Any collectors? Yeah, we collect stuff. A bunch of stuff we don't need. But we buy stuff and we collect stuff, and then what do we do? We leave it behind. You don't take any of that stuff with you. And so what archaeologists come along and they say, hey, these people have left pots and jewelry and pans and houses and furniture. And so they come along and they start digging stuff up because they want to know what life was like long ago. That sounds like a pretty good job, actually. Any archaeologist interest, that's just pretty neat. But they dig in the dirt and they find out how people lived. Do you know that every time archaeologists go digging in the Middle East around the Bible, where it was at, they never dig up something that discounts the Bible. Every time they dig something up and find it, it proves the Bible more. Case in point. For a long time, skeptics of the Bible were saying, Nazareth? Where's Nazareth? It doesn't show up in any archaeology findings. It shows up 300 years before Jesus. We see Nazareth in some history and archaeology. And it shows up 300 years after Jesus. But for 600 years, we don't see anything about Nazareth in archaeology. Well, in 2009, they were digging, and they found this. They called it the Nazareth House because it was in Nazareth, and it was dated right at the life and time of Jesus. And so some news out outlets got on the bandwagon and said, Oh, this is Jesus' house. It sold some stuff. But we don't know if it was Jesus' house or not. But we do know that this house was in the time and the life of Jesus. Naz Nazareth was a real place, and it was the hometown of Jesus. Here's a cool one. If you ever want to know what an ankle 
with the spike driven through it 2,000 years ago looks like? That's it. This was a guy by the name of Johannan. And he was a first century crucified guy. He was the first guy. For, for years, people were saying, you guys talk about Jesus being crucified and killed on a cross. Crucifixion didn't even exist in the first century. Well, they dug this guy's grave box up, and that's what they found. Crucifixion did exist in the first century. Now, we could spend hours... And your guys are like, oh my, please. We could spend hours nerding out on this stuff, right? But the point is, the book is not just a collection of myths and legends and fairy tales. Admittedly, it can be hard to understand. And it's a, but it's not a collection of legend. The Bible passes the history and archaeology test. And i got no time to talk about science and Bible. Gravity, water cycle, hematology, oceanography, astronom uh, astronomy. It's all in there. Actually, uh, Isaac Newton said this about science and the Bible. He said, I am thinking God's thoughts after him. We're going to talk about one more thing. Relevancy. Because here's the deal. Here's where a lot of us live. How can a book this old be relevant? Is it not outdated? I mean, I buy a phone, right? And what happens two or three years? It thing's ancient after two or three years. How can this book so old be so relevant? St. Augustine said, the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. You see, God's got a message from us, to us, and it speaks into everyday life. The Bible is filled with godly direction for your family, for managing work and anger and sexuality and dealing with parents and breaking sinful habits and friendships and money, how to handle enemies and stress and anxiety, how to pray, how to relate to God. It's filled with all that stuff. But it's challenging, right? It's hard to understand. You know, Peter in the New Testament wrote about Paul's writings. He said, man, Paul's writings, they're hard. I don't get half of them. I don't think he said half of them. But he, but he said, I don't understand a bunch of it. Sometimes this book will leave you scratching your head. And there are parts of it that I wish weren't in there. There are parts of it I don't like because it flies in the face of what I want to do. And it's difficult and it's hard. The stuff about denying yourself, forgiving others or asking others to forgive you, humbling yourself, pointing out that you probably think too much of yourself and too less of other people, loving those you disagree with. It would be easier if that stuff wasn't in there. Makes you uncomfortable. And a lot of it opposes the culture we now live in. It just does. But here's the thing. Just because we struggle with it or don't agree with it doesn't mean it's outdated. Doesn't mean it's not relevant. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean it doesn't count. It's worth taking seriously. So we've got a question to deal with here. What are we going to do with this book? 
What are we going to do with it? I'm guilty right here. I got about 15 or 20 of these things laying around my house. What am I going to do with it? I mean, I can't just write it off and dismiss it as unreliable history or irrelevant or full of crazy talk because that's just not true. It's just not true. I know it takes faith, but it's not blind faith. There's logic, there's reason, there's evidence that supports this book. And I don't think I've ever heard a story of somebody saying, man, I, did, I went out and I decided to set my life on its foundation, the foundation of this book, and now I regret it. I don't think I've ever heard somebody say that. But personally in my life, I have regretted the times that I've ignored the truth of this book. That's what I regret. So what are we going to do with this book? We're going to come to a time of communion here to end our service. It's what we do every week. This is a time for us to slow down and take a deep breath and remember the one that this book points us to. There's going to be people, if you haven't grabbed the little uh, juice and the bread, there's people passing that around. You can grab that now. You know, some of us in here might be thinking from time to time, when will His mercy and grace run out? When is God going to say, I've had enough. I had a, I've had enough of you coming back to the throne of grace time and time again with some of the same old stuff. Sometimes I wonder, when is your grace and your mercy going to run out? I, I don't know. But I'm thankful today that it's available. I'm so thankful today that it's available. You see, the real purpose of this book is not so that we can just live our best, best lives now. The real purpose of this book is to point us to Jesus and to introduce us to a relationship with God through Christ. You know what? The Bible nails the truth about sinful nature. Nails the truth about sinful nature. But it also gives us a solution. And I don't know what your questions uh, about this book are, the stories or the events in this book, but don't, don't let those, dis those questions distract you from the real purpose of the book. This room is filled with sin. It's filled with hurt. It's filled with brokenness and pain. This room is filled with questions that we have no answer to. But there is a God. And He has chosen to step into this creation. In all of its sinfulness, in all of its brokenness, in all of its wounds, and He stepped right into it. And He walks with us. But He doesn't just walk with us. He pays the penalty sin. You know there's a penalty for sin? 
the wrath of God. The wrath and the fury of God. God's holy. He can't mess with sin. And so the penalty of it is wrath. But Jesus steps in. And not only does he walk with us, but he walks and he goes to the cross and he takes the wrath of God from us and he puts it on himself. That's what Jesus did. You know, this book is full of stories of people who were messed up and hopeless and seemingly too far gone. But God stepped in. And I'm thankful. Jesus still steps in today. And folks, that's the true story of this book. A Jesus who steps in. After I pray, we're going to remember him. We're just going to take a deep breath and we're going to relax. And we're going to remember Jesus. God, all of us are guilty. We have held grudges. We have gossiped. We have lied. We've thought of ourselves other better than others. God, we have made gods out of things that are not worthy of our worship and honor. But God, you preserved a book written centuries ago, ago and handed it down to us and preserved it and saved it so that we could hear about Jesus about Him coming and Him stepping into a world so that we could find forgiveness and grace and mercy and healing and restoration that we could be brought from death to life. So Jesus, we thank You. We thank You. We thank You for what You did. We thank You for what You're doing. And we thank You, God, for what You're going to do. So, Jesus, it's in your name that we pray, and it's in your name that we remember. Amen.